this uh, parsha of Chukah uh, comes to reinforce a basic idea that Jews should have regarding any approach to Torah. On one hand, we want to understand the Torah as much as we can. We want to know the context, we want to know the logic, we want to know what the end result for practical behavior is. We want to be aware of what the Torah wants from us. On the other hand, we realize that no matter how much we know and how deeply we will delve into the Torah, the end is this is what the Torah told you to do. You don't get it, you'll never get it. It's beyond you. It's uh, to give you a medical example. Uh, you know, it's what the doctor told you. So he says, take this pill. So 99% of us never ask him what's in the pill. What chemicals, what drugs. The doctor said to take it, so we take it. Well, the Torah is that way also. On the other hand, as I pointed out, there is a necessity somehow to understand whatever we can. So, in the parsha of Chukat, the Torah gives us an example of how to view uh, events that have occurred and will occur in the future that are part of the nature of the Jewish people, in fact, part of the nature of all of humanity. Now, if we look at the story of Moshe Rabbeinu, because in this week's parsha he will be the only one left. Aaron passes away, Miriam passes away. In fact, the whole generation passes away. So uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, in our eyes, is always a superhuman figure, as he must have been to the Jewish people in the desert. He has a face that you cannot stare at because the radiance that emanates from it is too great. Uh, the Rabbanu Shalom himself says, Lo Abdi Moshe, my servant Moshe is like no other person. I speak to him, so to speak, face to face, mouth to mouth. Not dreams, not visions, but only almost intimately. So you have the great Moshe. Now, let's look at how the Jewish people saw Moshe. Here comes a man, we'll go back to Egypt. 
Here comes a man that for 60 years has nothing to do with the Jewish people. He's not in Kolo. He's not in the Beit Midrash. We don't know where he is. The Medrash tells us he's a king somewhere in Africa. We don't know anything about him. And now that he is already 80 years old, all of a sudden he appears on the scene. And he tells the Jewish people, now is the time for redemption, and that I will uh, perform miracles and plagues that will force Paro to free you. So the Jewish people uh, say, great. See, he starts on the mission, and he's only partially successful. And then the Jewish people say, well, you're not it. Because you didn't fulfill the promise. We're still in Egypt. Moshe convinces them to be more patient. Brings all of the makos upon the Egyptians. And the Jewish people leave Egypt. So now Moshe is, in the eyes of the Jewish people, so to speak, he's God himself. They believe that Moshe has these supernatural powers. And that therefore they can rely upon Moshe, no matter what the situation is. Moshe raises his hand and splits the sea. Moshe uh, departs for 40 days and comes down with the heavenly uh, tablets of stone and gives them the code that by which they will survive. Everybody believes in Moshe. How can they not believe in Moshe? Even though Moshe has his critics In every generation, there's Dosan Vaviram. In every generation, there are those that are convinced that somehow uh, they know better than the leaders. Okay. So now the Jewish people believe in Moshe. How can they not after what has happened here? After the uh, the exodus from Egypt and the splitting of the Red Sea and uh, the granting of the Torah at Sinai, they believe in Moshe. Problem is, as I mentioned before, there's a balance. They believe too greatly in Moshe. And therefore, when Moshe is not there anymore, for whatever reason, they're not aware of. We don't know what happened to Moshe. So we cannot continue here in the desert, in no man's land, with enemies on every side, 
going to talk a minute about Amalek and Moshe's hands. We cannot continue. Moshe Nenu, he's not here. How are we going to do it without Moshe? It's impossible. So they believe too much in Moshe. To a certain extent, the rabbi saw that as a type of paganism. A departure of faith from God. David HaMelech said it in Tehillim, we say it every day. Al-Tiftechu bindivim. Bivenadom shein losashua. Cannot rely on people. Cannot rely on their word. They cannot rely on their actions. People are not reliable. That's the rule in life. That's why we keep on electing them. <laughs> so the Jewish people therefore say we got to have something to believe in. Because the interesting thing about the Jewish people is that they always have to have something to believe in. They are not a nation of non-believers. They're a nation of believers. It only depends what they believe in. We see that in our time as well. The most secular and agnostic of Jews believes in something. Climate change, progressive, woke, whatever. He believes in something. The Barditchever said uh, famously, he said a Jew can be for God, a Jew can be against God, but he cannot be without God. You have to have something to believe in, the Jews. So they believed in Moshe, and somehow Moshe's gone. He didn't even say goodbye. You know, Jackie Mason's terrible joke, which is true, is that non-Jews never say goodbye, but they leave. And Jews leave. Jews say goodbye, but they never leave. So Moshe didn't, he departed, he didn't tell us anything. What are we going to do? So they have to have something to believe in. Because they can't be without God. So they create this uh, golden calf, which is representative of many, many ideas in humanity luxury, uh, strength, influence, power. And they say, Yisrael. No, this is our God. That's how we got out of Egypt. And Chazal teach us that there was an idol called Pesel Micho. 
that the Jewish people took out from Egypt, they went, it went with them for hundreds of years. I'm sure that all of you have had somewhat of a similar experience. But I had one grandchild that until he was almost 10 years old would not go to sleep unless he had a piece of his original blanket with him. (laughs) The kid was a genius. Completely normal. Everything perfect. But you couldn't put him to bed unless he had this piece of... uh, cloth that survived that is how we look at our <clears throat> Jewish people couldn't get along without something so this was the something so they went from one extreme to the other one extreme they believed in Moshe too much And they said, Moshe took us out of Egypt. And on the other hand, they didn't believe in Moshe at all. Because if there's no Moshe, we'll make for ourselves another God. We can make a golden calf, whatever we make is us. That's it. Without realizing the collateral damage that's involved there. I heard uh, on the news today, I listened to the news uh, very sparingly, because uh, they never have good news, do you notice? So uh, in the Golan... Uh, Israel, because it wants to be progressive and take care of climate change. So they have created wind farms that uh, operate uh, solely by wind. And that's supposed to be great because there's no carbon footprints and it uh, makes electricity. But after a few years, and now they want to make a big one on Drew's property, and the Jews are protesting, they're not going to let it happen. So after a long period of investigation and time, they reported that because of the wind farm, there are less birds that come to the Golan. Because there are less birds that come to the Golan, there are less insects and fertilizer that grows in the Golan. So the wind farm, in order to protect you from climate change, has decreased the yield of the crops by 20%. That's when people tinker. People think that they're smart. And it costs a few uh, billion shekel to put those things up. And so there's a big debate, what should they do now? So you cannot say take them down because that violates our religion. <laughs> so it doesn't make any difference what, what about the, who cares about the birds. But nature cares about the birds. And nature is not uh, 
given to ideals. So that's the problem with Moshe. What do we do with Moshe? So we have a famous Mishnah that appears in Rosh Hashanah. We find that uh, in the parsha of Bishalach, when Amalek comes to make war upon the Jewish people, so Moshe says, as long as my hands are raised, and you look at my hands, the Govar Yisrael, then Israel will prevail. But my hands are heavy, so he needs support from Chur, from Aaron, he needs support. So the Mishnah asks the question, what is going on here? What is this magic? You raise your hands, you know, you win. You lose your hands. You what? The Gemara always asks the questions that you're afraid to ask. Because you would be deemed to be a non-believer. But Chazal didn't uh, mince words. and They didn't take the easy way. So the Mishnah says, Vire Moshe Kvedim. So what? And what terms of battle do the hands of a bystander being raised or lowered matter? In our parsha, we have a second incident. We have the incident of the Nechashim, of the serpents, that somehow there are wild reptiles that invade the camp of Israel, and they bite. They're vipers. And their bite can be lethal. There's venom in their mouth. And people are dying from it. So what does Moshe do? According to the Chumash, he hears the vision in heaven and he makes these copper replicas of the snakes, of the reptiles, and he hangs them on the high beam and the Torah says that if someone got bit and he looked at that, uh, looked up at that uh, replica of the snake, they would say he would survive. So the Mishnah asked the same question. Is looking at a copper snake a cure for anything? What kind of uh, magic is that? So the Mishnah answers very subtly. Man, she Yisrael Mabitim Lamala. 
Anytime that Jews look up, when you look up, you see heaven. They're looking up in the, in the Jewish idiom is a spiritual experience. I look at the mountains. They're truly awe-inspiring. I remember I was in Alaska by Mount McKinley. So this is a mountain that rises 22,000 feet, which is pretty good. And it is a mountain that rises all at once. In other words, like Mount Everest may uh, at the end be uh, higher, thousands of feet higher, but Mount Everest begins at 13,000 feet already. This begins at nothing. It's 22,000 straight. And this mountain makes its own weather. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, the experience. So when you look at that mountain, you have to be impressed that there's a creator. How did that happen? So the mission says when they looked at the copper snake, or when they looked at the hands of Moshe, they gave, it was a spiritual experience. Meaning that they no longer believed in Moshe, they believed in what was in back of Moshe, where Moshe knew it from. There's a famous uh, Hasidic uh, legend. There was a Hasidic Rebbe in the first generation of the Hasidic movement, the second generation. His name was Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha He came from Antipol. Reb Zusha had a reputation for being not a learned person. And he purposely fostered such a uh, reputation because then people don't bother you. <laughs> I, I learned that lesson uh, many times. That, uh, when I moved into Muncie, so it was a time when the uh, New York Bell Telephone Company of blessed memory uh, gave clergy a 25% discount on the phone. So in Muncie, everybody was a rabbi. The butcher, the plumber, the electrician, everybody was listed in the phone book as a rabbi. So I came to Muncie and I said, you know, I'm not, then I was not the was between positions and I wasn't officially anything. So I just listed my name without rabbi. And people started to call me. I said, why are you calling me? He said, well, you must really be a rabbi because if they're your rabbi, then you know. <laughs> so Rabzusha, they once asked Rabzusha a very complicated halachic question and Rav Zusha answered it 
they came to the Gon of Vilna, who was uh, well known uh, for his uh, attitude towards Hasidus. And they said to him, you know, they, this, this, this question arose, and they asked Reb and this is what Reb answered. What do you say to this? So the Gon is reputed to have said, well, Reb is correct. That's the correct answer. Because it's a Yerushalmi and one of the Masechtas. He said, but my question is, where did Reb know the Yerushalmi from? So they went back to Reb and they asked him, you know, the Gon said that you're right, but he's uh, perplexed. Where did you know it from? And Abzusha famously answered, tell him that I knew it from where the Yerushalmi knew it. <laughs> so there's an element here. And that element, so the... Uh, the uh, copper uh, snakes and the hands of Moshe are here to teach us that element. A, that we don't trust in people, and B, we don't trust in symbols either. The Gemara tells us the uh, in Masechus Psochim in the Mishnah that uh, there were six things that Chizkiyo Amelech the great king Chizkiyo, the king of Yehuda, who was a great tzaddik, and who, uh, uh, the Gemara says, had the capability of becoming the Messiah. So he did six things that he changed uh, from the norm. So one of the six things is that he took the copper snakes that Moshe Rabbeinu had created, and he hid them. He put them, he buried them, and goodbye. They were not on public display anymore. So for uh, maybe uh, almost a millennium, the snakes were, um, you know, you could, uh, they, were, they were in the Israel Museum. You could come and see them. And he took and he put them away. So the Mephorshim all explained that he put him away because people started to believe that the snakes could actually do something. They didn't see what was behind the snakes. It was already that far removed and that close to paganism that they believed in the snakes. So he took the snakes and he got rid of them, buried them. So here again is the balance. We believe in the miracle of the snakes because that teaches us to raise our sights to heaven and to look for what's behind them. However, if you believe in the snakes themselves, you have to bury the snakes. There's no place for them in our, in our understanding of the relationship of the Creator to us.
So if you'll think about it, you'll see how cogent and relative this is, relevant this is uh, to problems that we face and idealisms that we face. There are still a lot of people that believe in people. Which, as I uh, pointed out, oftentimes is only a recipe for disaster and disappointment. And there are a lot of people that believe in mumbo-jumbo. Snakes, hands raised. It's a great industry of uh, charlatans. But on the other hand, if you say that the snakes can't do anything, that's wrong. The snakes do a lot. Forces you to look behind them, above them. And if you do that, so then that's the purpose. Then somehow uh, it's a positive thing and not a negative thing. So this is a pattern that we see in the Torah and in Tanakh over and over again. The extremes. Believe in people. Don't ever believe in everybody. and Then you don't believe in anybody. Which is the worst of all the worlds. Or you believe in all sorts of magic potions. Somehow... Uh, uh, events or items that have uh, magical qualities to them. So that is also a disaster. But you believe that there is a supernatural that always exists within us that's part of us. We're living examples of it. So that's the balance that the Torah wanted us to have. It's not easy to maintain, and it always changes according to time and circumstance. And there are different representations of it. But the principle of balance remains, and that always should be applied to the extent that we can to our behavior and to our thoughts and how we view the world. And therefore, uh, the Torah always remains a Torah a Torah of life and of practicality and of spiritual greatness. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week, God willing.